You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Shipped same-day delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Okay, I have really been looking forward to this part of the program because, as you know, Steve Bannon was indicted on Friday. And Steve Bannon is making a court appearance today, perhaps as I speak, for all I know, two counts of contempt of Congress for his failure to comply with a subpoena issued by the House January 6th Select Committee. So this is all about his noncompliance with the efforts of a mostly Democratic, there are two members who are Republicans, Kinzinger and Cheney, but a committee that is now investigating the events of January 6th. It is, as Axios reports, the first such indictment to come out of the committee's investigation of the Capitol insurrection and the first time that the Justice Department has charged someone for contempt of Congress since 1983. So this doesn't happen all that often. He faces fines and possible jail time. I predicted uh, when the news broke that he'd be sleeping in his own bed tonight. We shall find out. Each count of contempt to Congress carries a minimum of 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail per the Department of Justice. So perhaps I'm wrong in that regard. They move quickly to hold Bannon in contempt. They say that statements he made publicly on January the 5th suggest that he had some foreknowledge about extreme events that would occur the next day. This came on the same day that the committee threatened to hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt after he declined to appear for his scheduled testimony. And finally, the committee has subpoenaed dozens of other Trump aides. It's unclear how many now will choose to cooperate in light of the charges against Bannon. You can imagine they're all paying very close attention to what happens today with Steve Bannon. So this news broke Friday just as I was preparing to go to the Philadelphia Free Library to interview Robert Costa. Costa from the Washington Post, the co-author with Bob Woodward of the book Peril, a book that the January 6th Select Committee is citing in its investigation because there was so much good reporting done about the events of January 6th by Costa and Woodward. I, I should point out that the library brings in lots of authors to speak. Many of them are big names. And on certain occasions, when those authors that they bring to town to speak, on certain occasions when they have, how would I say this, uh, you know, a marquee value, they have asked, and I have agreed, to be the interviewer in front of a live audience. I don't think they've been doing it for quite some time because of COVID, but in the past, I have been at the Philadelphia Free Library uh, interviewing Michael Hayden. 
interviewing Ray Kelly, interviewing Stephen Levy. I shouldn't do this because I'm going to forget people, but interviewing Richard Clark. So I've, I've done it on many, many occasions. It was a great opportunity to get Robert Costa's insight on Steve Bannon. And more importantly, the bigger question that I've been asking about the probe into January 6th, I wanted to ask Costa specifically a question nagging at me about the events of January 6th. So stick with me because you are about to get, during the course of this hour, a very keen insight into all of these events, a very fresh perspective. You might remember that when I first read Peril, I said it gave me an appreciation of the complexity of the full-court press by Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Unless we get caught up in semantics, overturn is a word that he himself used. It, it, it was not simply him giving a speech on the 6th and then inciting those who had gathered at the mall. There were a handful of things that were all taking place at a similar time. First of all, you had efforts on the ground in various states, including Georgia and Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania, to challenge the election results. Additionally, Trump was leaning on the Justice Department to release a letter which would have lent credibility to the efforts to overturn the Georgia result. Remember, we talked about that extensively, which which I Uh, analogized to Nixon once trying to get the CIA to lean on the FBI to back off of its Watergate investigation. I mean, truly egregious conduct if it had occurred. Then come Costa and Woodward. And from their book, Peril, we learned that Trump was seeking behind the scenes to rely on lawyer John Eastman's legal justification for Vice President Mike Pence to reject votes from specific states. He's the one who wrote the legal memo. And then yesterday, and you can read this today at Smirconish.com, we learned of another memo. John Carl, the ABC reporter, has a brand new book coming out tomorrow, and in a story that he broke yesterday with George Stephanopoulos, based on his book, Here's the lead. In a memo not made public until now, then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows emailed to Vice President Mike Pence's top aide on New Year's Eve a detailed plan for undoing President Biden's election victory. ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl reports the memo written by former President Donald Trump's campaign lawyer Jenna Ellis is reported for the first time in Carl's upcoming book, Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show. So there are a pair of memos behind the scenes providing legal justification for Pence to say you don't have to and you shouldn't certify that vote. And and, and by the way, a a sort of a, uh, a footnote to all of this is Carl reporting that Donald Trump told Mike Pence, do this or you will be a pussy. And when Trump is asked by Carl to confirm that, what does Trump say? I wouldn't deny it. And then the final step, which never came to pass, was to have the House decide the outcome where the GOP, despite having fewer members, had an edge because the process would be one vote per delegation. So here's my point. It all changes the way that we, I think, should look at the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Their role, whether they explicitly understood it or not, was to intimidate Pence, 
while Pence was being pressured to follow Eastman's legal advice and the Jenna Ellis legal advice that he could break with tradition and simply reject electoral votes from specific states. In other words, Pence would reject Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, some combination thereof, maybe Michigan, where they were being contested on the ground and where the Justice Department had emboldened him because of the memo. Relying on Eastman's advice, relying on Jenna Ellis's advice that he had the power, he would now reject certain states, then order the House to make the decision, and the Republicans would determine the next president because they controlled more delegations. And my big question, which you've heard me outline here on POTUS, has been, now that we understand the complexity of it, for all of that effort, which was dependent upon the foot soldiers pressuring Congress and Vice President Pence in a way that certification of the election would be stopped, I want to know what was being communicated to those foot soldiers. What were they supposed to do? Because when they got there, they seemed rather clueless. Last Wednesday in in the Washington Post, it talked about how the majority of the roughly 650 people who've been federally charged in the riot were not part of far-right groups or premeditated conspiracies to attack the Capitol. But as the Washington Post reported, quote, they included community leaders, small business owners, teachers, yoga instructors. One wore his badge. Another had a jacket that had his phone number on the back. 573 of them have no known affiliation with extremist groups. And the evidence gathered to date shows the vast majority of participants didn't have a plan to overthrow the government. Quote, they didn't know what they were doing. A lot of them didn't even know where they were going. So said an investigator quoted by the Post. So here I am with Robert Costa, Friday night at the library. It's a school night. I don't go out on Friday nights because I have to get up early for CNN. But I did this in deference to Robert Costa and my relationship with the library And there are four cuts that I'm going to play for you. Now, the first of them came via a throwaway. Robert Costa was born and raised in the Philly Burbs and and loves to tell the story. And, of course, I get a big kick out of it, how his father would drive him to school and he would be listening to me doing morning drive on the radio. What he revealed Friday night is that he was a sometime phone caller of mine, which is kind of interesting. Wish I had that tape. So this was a homecoming. And I began with a series of local questions. One, the third question that I asked was, I wanted to know definitively, what's the real story on four seasons total landscaping? But I'm going to play this for you because in answering that question, he gets into a great summary of how Donald Trump makes the decision New Year's weekend that he is going to leave Florida come back to the White House and oversee an attempt to overturn the election. Philly subject number three, and then I'm done with Philly. This is not an interview we could do in any other town. No. Right? As you're doing or with any other person. I mean, there's no one else. He's the king of Philadelphia. He's from Bucks County. I was, so surpri- I was fishing when I asked him to do this. And when he said yes, I said, okay. Okay, so Let's here's what I most wanted to know yes. from Peril. Okay. okay? Four seasons total landscape. What, what is the story? There's a line in the book where uh, Woodward and I wrote the whole book together, but there is a line in the book 
where we use the, the phrase, uh, four seasons total landscaping is in Northeast, and it, it's a place where you can get fair-priced cheesesteaks. And Woodward said to me, what does Northeast mean? <laughs> Northeast Philly. And I was like, that's the, that's the way people refer to Northeast Philadelphia. And he's like, what's a fair-priced cheesesteak? How much does that cost? I said, don't worry about it. Just leave it in. <laughs> leave it in. And so the Philadelphia parts of the book, not, you, you, not, maybe say, not 50-50. But you say in the book, page 145, yes. Trump thought Rudy would be at a hotel, not next to a crematorium and an adult bookstore. All right. I mean, was it a total F-up? How did it, it happen? It was. So this is Saturday, November 7, 2020. Chronology matters when you're writing these things. So Donald Trump... The election's November 3rd, 2020. And on November 4th, he talks to Kellyanne Conway privately, and he goes, how did we lose to Joe Biden? How did we lose? So privately, he's saying he lost. He acknowledged he lost. But by November 5th and 6th, Giuliani's starting to call Trump and saying, you didn't lose. This was stolen. And Trump goes, yes, yes, it was stolen. We're, we, the whole thing's rigged. And uh, Giuliani says, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go to Pennsylvania. I'm going to get Corey Lewandowski. I'm going to get Pam Bondi, the former attorney general of Florida. And we're going to go just kick some ass in Philadelphia. I I, I apologize. We're at the free library. Kick a rear end. (laughs) My father said to me tonight, do not curse at the free library. (laughs) He's a frequent visitor here. A lot of respect from the Costa family to the free library. So I apologize for using the A word. But so around November 6th and 7th, Trump's saying, you got to go to Philadelphia. And Giuliani, as we later learned and reported deeply, is not always thinking through the logistics and organization. And he has an assistant named Maria Ryan who emails the Trump campaign and says, we need $20,000 a day. This is a high-paced operation we're going to do for Trump. And Trump says to uh, – they go to Trump and they say, uh, Mr. President, Rudy wants $20,000 a day. And Trump goes, yeah, don't pay him. Don't pay him a cent. Rudy bets on the win. Well, he'll get paid if he wins long term. And they go back to Giuliani and they say, we're not going to pay you 20000 a day. We'll maybe pay for some of your expenses. So Giuliani's people book Four Seasons Total Landscaping, thinking it's for Four Seasons Hotel. But by the time, in, because it's COVID, Corey Lewandowski, Giuliani, they're all driving up from Washington to Philly. By the time they get there, they're saying to themselves, we've got to cover our A. Because this is a mistake, but we're going to still go through with it. Four seasons total landscaping. And uh, that same day, so Giuliani's driving up to Philadelphia to Four Seasons. And that same day, Jared Kushner's at, in Arlington that morning with Hope Hicks and the rest of the campaign team. And they say to, they're saying to each other, who's going to tell Trump? Because the same day of Four Seasons is the day the election's decided. Biden's announced as the winner on Saturday, November 7th. Giuliani's in Philadelphia at Four Seasons. The Trump campaign's in Arlington. And Jared Kushner says, uh, uh, he, I don't want to go talk to him. <laughs> Maybe someone else can. And they go, no, Jared, no, we think it's best for the family. He goes, no, no. The family will come in when it's time for last rites. Someone else should go. And so they go that night to Trump after the Four Seasons thing happens, and they go up to the residence, and we, we put in the book on the night of November 7th, after Four Seasons, they're serving uh, pigs in a blanket upstairs in the residence. And Trump starts going, what was that today with Rudy? And everyone's like, ah, we got to get going. We don't, because it was kind of campaign organized. And, 
And then that's the meeting where Trump first asks his advisors, where are we going to start finding some more votes? I need 10,000 votes in Georgia. I need 12,000 votes in Michigan. And that was the night after he's angry because he's watching, he's upstairs in the residence eating pigs in a blanket with Diet Coke, and he's watching news coverage of Giuliani being ridiculed. And he starts to say, I'm fighting. Okay, so that is Robert Costa with yours truly, Friday night, Philadelphia Free Library, giving us background as to how Trump makes the decision in consultation with Bannon that he's coming home to fight this election. When we come back, I'm going to ask him about the issue that nags at me, the issue of, okay, for all the planning, though, who, if anyone, was communicating with the foot soldiers? And he's about to tell a story about how on the night of January 5th, on the cold night of January 5th, Costa is out there gumshoeing it outside the Willard Hotel, while inside the Willard Hotel, I think he said on the second or third floor, in a suite, you've got Bannon and Giuliani and a lot of the Proud Boy types who are milling around outside. Stick around. This is going to get even more interesting. Michael Smirconish. Okay, as Steve Bannon is headed to court today for contempt, I am sharing with you elements of a conversation that I had Friday night with Robert Costa from the Washington Post co-author of Peril with Bob Woodward. Perfect timing as the news of Bannon had just broken for me to really get into the weeds with Costa about the timeline surrounding January 6th. Now, in the first, I'm playing four cuts for you this hour. In the first cut, as I said, it was like a throwaway line. I was asking him to tell me the story about Four Seasons Total Landscaping, which is the now Philadelphia landmark where the press conference was being held by uh, Giuliani and Bernie Carrick and others at the same time that the election was being called for Joe Biden. All I wanted to know was, how did they end up there? Surely they thought they were going to the Four Seasons Hotel, which Costa then launches into a timeline discussion of Trump's decision to contest the election. Similarly, the second cut was also not intended to really pursue the events of January 6th. But it's a question that I, you've perhaps heard me ask, I like to ask of high-profile authors who write books that are parsed and subject to the sort of advanced stories that say, you know, here are the five things you need to know from Bob Costa's new book. So that was the setup. I said to Robert Costa, Bob, you know, your, your book got a lot, lot of attention. What's the big nugget? that you think everybody else missed, if any. And you'll hear him answer that in a way that now he goes back into Steve Bannon's planning for the events of January 6th and Donald Trump's direct involvement with the Willard Hotel war room. Remember I said on Friday that the the Willard Hotel is about to surpass the Watergate as being the most noteworthy Washington, D.C. hotel with a political past. Listen to this. This was the kind of a book, yours with Woodward, where people who got advanced copies, the same kind of treatment that John Carl is getting right now, where everyone rushes to say, here are the five tidbits, here, here are the revelations of the book. So you know that which made the most news. I don't even intend to cover in our short time General Milley all that much because that got such attention. This is a sophisticated audience. They already know that. What did you write? This is the question. 
What did you write in the book that you think everyone really didn't pay enough attention to? Great question. I'll begin with the news tonight. Our book continues to be in the news tonight. And that sounds like we're tooting our own horn, and I am. But uh, (laughs) tonight, and it's a serious story, very serious story. Tonight, Steve Bannon was indicted by the Department of Justice. I'm here as a reporter. Thank you. By the way, can I say, just in recognition of the applause, if Steve Bannon were here tonight, he'd be applauding with you because I'm convinced he's the happiest guy in the world to have been indicted. You think he wants to be a political martyr? Absolutely. He wants to. He loves this. You gave him ex- they gave him exactly what he wanted. He's not going to go to jail for not showing up to the January 6th commission. But I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, he was indicted. He is going to surrender on Monday. So we'll see if he's in prison or not. He'll be sleeping in his own bed Monday night. But there's a backstory to why tonight's global news political story is Steve Bannon being indicted. It's the first time since 1983 that someone has been indicted for defying a congressional subpoena. Think about that. Since 1983, we haven't had one indictment in this entire country for someone defying a congressional subpoena. It happened tonight. And the reason Steve Bannon was indicted tonight is directly, and this is not me spinning you, it's directly tied to our book. Because our book, if you look at Steve Bannon's subpoena from the House Committee on January 6th, there is three pieces of evidence cited in the footnote of the subpoena and mentioned in the subpoena itself. And they are literally the scenes in our book cited by Page. And here's why Bannon was subpoenaed and ultimately why he doesn't want to talk. We revealed in this book, and it didn't become news at first. It was kind of a throwaway. It only became news, to answer your question, after the January 6th committee combed through our book and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are Woodward and Costa actually telling us here? Because people thought that January 6th was maybe kind of a sporadic thing that happened after a Trump rally. But what we revealed and connected is that January 6th, and I'm not here to say it's criminal or not, but as a reporter, I will give you the assessment that there was coordination of an intense pressure campaign that the Department of Justice will ultimately decide was this conspiracy on a criminal level to commit fraud against the United States. And it is a crime to commit fraud against the United States. And there ha- the big news tonight that also isn't getting attention with the ban and indictment is that Merrick Garland has opened up a grand jury investigation onto January 6th, which granted the indictment for this ban and subpoena. So now there's an active grand jury, and every, every lawyer in this room knows, I'm not a lawyer, but covering grand juries, the minute a grand jury is open by the Department of Justice, it can become expansive. But anyway, real quick, Bannon on December 30th, 2020, talks to Trump on the phone, and this is not publicly known until we published our book. Trump's down in Florida. Trump likes to be in Florida around the New Year for one reason, the Mar-a-Lago New Year's Eve party on December 31st. Bannon talks to Trump on December 30th, and Trump's depressed. Giuliani has failed him. They've lost in the courts. Nothing's happening in the courts. The Electoral College has already voted. Biden's been declared the winner by not only the Electoral College, but Mitch McConnell has congratulated Biden as the president-elect of the United States. And Trump's in Florida, and he's furious. And Bannon, who knows Trump's psyche more than almost anyone, was with him at the heart of the end of the campaign in the White House for the first eight months. He says to Trump, you can still win this. You can still win this. And Trump goes, what are you talking about? Bannon says, January 6th, you need to make it a reckoning. You need to have all of your supporters in Washington. You have to make January 6th a showdown. And Trump goes, well, how do I do that? 
And Bannon says, you can throw the election to the House. There's a way to do this. You've got to make it so chaotic on January 6th, and I'm not going to curse because it's free library, but Bannon, if you read the book, it says Bannon uses a lot of curse words to say people are going to say, what is going on here? We're going to create enough chaos where the whole country's in paralysis about the certification of Joe Biden. And he says a chilling line to Trump. He says, even if we don't succeed, Mr. President, we're going to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. And what Bannon meant was, based on our reporting, that they wanted to delegitimize and smear Biden. And remember, Bannon and Giuliani were behind the Hunter Biden laptop promotion campaign. They wanted to smear Biden so much to make it so chaotic with the certification and have these amplified claims of voter fraud that even if Biden was inaugurated and certified, that many voters, millions of voters, would say it was a fraud, it was a phony election. And so it was an odd moment. On December 31st, Trump flies back unexpectedly to Washington. And I remember talking to reporters at the time, and everyone didn't know, why is Trump skipping the New Year's Eve party? Well, he wanted to focus on January 6th. Excuse me, yeah, January 6th. And that same period, December 31st, uh, January 1st, John Eastman, Bannon's buddy, says, I'm going to write a memo, and we're going to have a, a, what many people are now calling a coup attempt. And so John Eastman writes a memo by January 1st. Bannon's talking about this on his podcast. Trump's in the loop. And by January 2nd, the Eastman memo is revealed to the White House. It's circulated, not shown to anyone in the public. And it shows, here's how we're going to throw out electors, but you need to push Pence to the brink. You need to have to have Pence participate in the smear to make the smear seem legitimate. So you've got to make sure Pence is involved. Compromise Pence. And again, long story short, Bannon's involvement leads to the Eastman memo, which leads to January 5th at the Willard Hotel. Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, John Eastman. And what happens on January 5th, late at night after Mike Pence leaves the White House? Trump calls in. Trump calls in to update Bannon and Giuliani on the pressure campaign. And it was Trump's decision to call into the Willard Hotel that prompted the January 6th committee to issue the subpoena. Because what peril showed is that Trump was now directly involved with the Willard War Room. And we had not previously known that. And now that we know the phone calls, people seem to be nervous. The president keeps, former president keeps suing the National Archives and others to block his phone records from January 5th and January 6th. And if I've learned one thing covering Donald Trump for 10 years is that he does nothing by email. Everything is the phone. And if I've, people ask me sometimes, if you could ask Donald Trump one question, what would it be? I say, Mr. Trump, can you please show me your phone records? Because the phone records will tell the story. Okay, so that's Robert Costa with yours truly at the Philadelphia Free Library on Friday night. When we come back, we will get to the question that I most wanted to ask, which was, okay, Bob, you've, you've convinced us now that there was a lot going on. This was not haphazard. This was not just Trump spitballing it, standing up there on the mall on January 6th, but rather there was a cohesive plan underway to overturn the election outcome. So where's the missing piece? Where's where's the information that was communicated to the foot soldiers? Because the guy with the horns, when he finally got into the Congress, he looked clueless. I mean, the guy who puts his feet up on the desk of Nancy Pelosi, how is that going to overturn the election? It seems to me, and I'm, I'm not downplaying what transpired at the Capitol. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
But but I am asking, where is that missing piece? You'll want to hear what Bob Costa says in a moment. Michael Smirconish. Okay, we're in the midst of me sharing with you some of the conversation that I had with Robert Costa of the Washington Post Friday night, just after the news of Steve Bannon broke, because it's it 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 ended up just being this very in the weeds discussion about what is known about the events of January 6th. So I've played two cuts so far, both of which deal with Costa providing background for what he has reported pertaining to the timeline. And now the question that I most wanted to ask him, and just just by way of, of brief recap here, what occurs to me having paid close attention to all of this is that the significance of January 6th as it relates to Trump, it's not just him giving a speech and then sitting back and people show up at the Capitol, some of whom break in and then don't seem to know what they're doing. It was more sophisticated. OK, as you've heard Costa say, it's Bannon contacting Trump as Trump's getting ready to spend yet another his final as president weekend at Mar-a-Lago. And Bannon says, you know, you can fight this thing. You can win this thing. And Trump comes back to Washington with fire in the belly emboldened by, we now know from John Carl's reporting, emboldened by a memo that has been written by Jenna Ellis, who is the campaign lawyer, uh, another memo written by John Eastman, an attorney on which the president was relying, who are giving legal justification that Mike Pence can reject Georgia, reject Michigan, reject Arizona, reject Pennsylvania, and challenge the election results. And at the same time, Trump is leaning on the Justice Department. This didn't happen, but it's been documented to release a letter to provide some legal heft, some credibility for the efforts to overturn the Georgia result, which no doubt would then have been shown to Michigan, Arizona and Pennsylvania. What I guess I'm trying to say is there were a lot of legal machinations behind the scenes and a lot of pressure being brought to bear on Mike Pence so that on January 6, Pence would not accept the certification of the Electoral College vote in an effort to then throw it back to the House where Republicans controlled more delegations than Democrats. Some people mistakenly think, well, the D's controlled the House. So if the House was making the decision, then Joe Biden would have been the victor. No. No, the rules are such that it's one vote per delegation, and the edge was, in the Republicans' favor, 26 to 24. In other words, Pence would reject those state votes where they were contested and where the Justice Department had emboldened him and where Jenna Ellis and John Eastman said that he could and where Donald Trump was calling him the P-word if he wouldn't go along with this plan. And it all could have worked. It all could have worked. But my question has been the people who broke into the Capitol, they were an integral part of this. And what I most want to know from this January 6th select committee is what were they supposed to do? What was their role? Was it enough that Trump just stoked them? Or are we going to find out that there were memos, instructions, meetings, something that came out of the Willard uh, Hotel war room where the Proud Boys were told, and then you do X and then you do Y? Which brings me to questioning Robert Costa Friday night on exactly that issue, what I regard as the, the missing piece. Here's the exchange. What I most learned from the book 
I had been, and I pay close attention, I had been under the impression that, that there were a lot of moving parts lacking coordination. What I learned from the book was the presence of the Eastman memo and how there really was a concerted plan of attack, although I don't want to give Trump too much quote-unquote credit because I don't think that he's all that organized to be able to pull right. it we off. We still need to figure out intent, the level of coordination. Right. But here's the missing piece. The missing piece is why didn't more of a message get to the foot soldiers? And here's what I mean by this, Bob. This is not your reporting, but it's your newspaper. The Washington Post, this past Wednesday, quote, court records show that the vast majority of the roughly 650 people federally charged in the riot were not part of far-right groups or premeditated conspiracies to attack the Capitol. Rather, many were an array of everyday Americans that included community leaders, small business owners, teachers, yoga instructors. About 573 have no known affiliation with an extremist group. And then there's this. The participants... The vast majority of the participants, quote, didn't have a plan to overthrow the government. Quote, they didn't know what they were doing. A lot of them didn't even know where they were going. They had a message, and the message was, the pitchfork people will show up again, and you need to be afraid of us. I I picture the guy with the horns who just got sentenced this week, or the guy who put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. For all of the efforts and machinations that were taking place. Why, why wasn't some message in the Willard Hotel on the 5th communicated to those who were supposed to be the foot soldiers on the 6th? For example, it seems to me that one obvious attack would have been be squatters. When you get inside, sit down, don't let anybody in so that the vote can't be certified. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the, the loop is not closed for me that they had an end game. I was outside the Willard Hotel on January 5th, and I will remember that for the rest of my life. I walked around in 30-degree weather trying to figure out what was going on. I don't really remember many reporters out there, if any. It was a freezing cold night, and I walked by hundreds of proud boys, oath keepers, with military fatigues, and they were outside the Willard Hotel. At the time, I didn't know all the people who were there on January 5th. At the same time, you have... Bannon and Giuliani and Eastman in a suite on the third floor of the Willard Hotel. Roger Stone, coincidentally, is in the Willard Hotel that night. And your point is a very valid one. We still do not know if there were cross lines between the hundreds of agitators outside, and it was euphoric in the streets. Washington, it was like apocalyptic in nature. Washington was totally empty due to the pandemic, but around the Willard it was just like a circus of people in red hats screaming, tomorrow's the day we take it back, running, fighting with cops, fighting with each other. It was a mad scene. But we still don't know were those hundreds of people, some of them in military gear, coordinating in any way with Trump people who are upstairs in the suites. That's one area DOJ the Congressional Committee have to figure out, were there cross lines? Were there any kind of communications with these outside fringe groups that were physically in the same vicinity? Maybe there were not. I'm not here to guess. But that question hasn't been answered. But that also doesn't take away from the intent to create total constitutional chaos, maybe using voter alleged voter fraud that's not founded in anything in truth. That separate effort by Bannon, Giuliani, and Trump could still be seen as criminal 
by the Department of Justice. We'll see. We'll see what they well, do. Well, I'm not minimizing. Sure. I'm not minimizing anything that it was. It was appalling. It was. It was abhorrent. But it just seemed to me that I expected one more piece. Well, of, Bannon of, on his of, podcast talked about having all the people there occupy the Capitol. So much of, to really boil this down. What Bannon and Giuliani spoke about publicly, and Eastman's memo spells out, and to, it answers your question exactly. They wanted the Capitol to stop the certification but due to a confrontation. I don't think they thought they were going to physically get in, but some kind of mass protest outside. They wanted a delay in the certification so there would be a pause. And I believe this has been reported in the Post and elsewhere that some of the people really wanted to get into the Capitol, but they wanted a delay for one reason. If there was a delay in the certification on January 6th, that gives time for Trump allies in the states to call special sessions to say we need to send an alternate slate of electors to the Capitol. It was all predicated on intimidating Pence. Correct. Okay, one more bit of audio. Interesting, right? You've now heard three of four cuts of audio from my conversation with Robert Costa about what transpired January 5 and 6, actually New Year's weekend, into those events. There's one other thing that came up on Friday night that he really had a passionate response about, and it was me saying, your newspaper has said it was 187 minutes that elapsed on January 6th while there was trouble afoot and before Trump did anything. What was he doing? And you're going to hear that Costa takes umbrage at use of the word idle to describe Donald Trump because he says he was anything but idle. Michael Smirconish. Okay, final piece now, and thank you so much for hanging with me as I rely on Robert Costa from The Washington Post, co-author of Peril, to walk through the timeline of January 6th and the events preceding it as we know it, we're up to this critical moment. What was Donald Trump doing that afternoon? Your newspaper has calculated that there were 187 minutes that elapsed before Donald Trump, after everything hit the fan, uh, until such time as Donald Trump finally told his folks to go home. Sum up. What happened in those 187 minutes? I have an image of him in the ante room off the Oval Office watching multiple flat screens and just doing nothing about it. It's true, and that's why Mark Meadows, who was there that day, is under intense scrutiny right now from the House committee. The House committee issued a statement tonight saying if Meadows doesn't comply with his subpoena, we're going to put him him in prison as well. We're going to ask the DOJ to have a criminal indictment of Meadows because they know Meadows was there, and as we report in our book, Keith Kellogg, who's Pence's actual advisor, but he's, in the, he's tr- close friends with Trump, the retired general. He's there that day. But I will say this. It's become kind of conventional wisdom, 187 minutes, Trump is idle. And when I first started reporting on this book with Woodward, we thought Trump was a passive figure January 6th. And he was on the surface. He idly watched television. We have a scene in our book where... Keith Kellogg walks in and says, Pence is okay. You want to do anything else? And Trump just blinks, keeps watching TV. And Trump has confirmed a thousand times in interviews that he really wasn't doing much. But that, to me, as a reporter, is not the story. It was conventional wisdom, and it really should be cracked open today again and again. Donald Trump was not idle. He was idle physically on January 6th. But the story, to me, is between... December 30th, when he talks to Bannon, and January 5th, 
at midnight in the morning of January 6th, he was as aggressive and active uh, as any president could be, pushing every lever of power, state officials, calling them, pestering them repeatedly, barking at them, hold a special session or else, send another alternate slate, find me votes, calling members of Congress, block the certification, screaming at the Pence, you're not going to be my friend anymore, the mob outside wants you to do this, I need you to do it, Mike, do it, Mike, Eastman says you can do it, Mike, do it, Mike, calling up the Department of Justice, find me votes, Barr is gone, Rosen, Clark, help me out. This, and I have sat across my couch and chair for hours with people who had direct interactions with the President of the United States, and they hate when I talk about Trump is idle. And these are some of his closest friends, because they say this guy was relentless. He was idle when he watched the storm he started start to unfold, but he had created the storm. And so, yes, he was idle. The National Guard was slow. As Millie confides privately in her book, January 6th was a grave intelligence failure. After 9-11, our country has become excellent, many people would argue, in terms of tracking international terror, foreign terror on U.S. shores, foreign threats, but doesn't track domestic threats in the same way. And they were not ready with the Capitol Police. They were not ready in Washington with the National Guard. And part of it was a confluence of factors. Remember, in May of June 1st, when Trump goes across Lafayette Square, the D.C. mayor and the D.C. cops said, we don't want another criminal scene here, a violent scene of the police clashing with the protesters, the National Guard. So the National Guard in D.C. that day were wearing their soft uniforms. This was more of a traffic cop operation. So as Millie confides privately in the book, it was a failure across the board. The military wasn't ready. The police weren't ready. So it happens, but I just, as you can't spend nine or ten months reporting on this and say the story is Trump being idle. Was he non-responsive in those few hours? 100% yes. But he is watching something put into motion that he wanted in motion. He was not surprised. And I think the idleness is sometimes seen as Trump being in, uh, almost idiotic and sitting back and watching TV, but he was passive because he almost could have predicted, it seemed, what would happen. I he stoked the chaos. I still have the question, and I'm, I'm going to surrender the floor, but what did he expect to then happen? Okay, the siege is on. Now what? I don't know the answer to that, and that has not the, been explained the answer to me. Was, the answer is in the Eastman memo. He wanted a delay, and he was prepared to call people like Governor Kemp of Georgia and say, there's a delay. There's now time for you to send an alternate slate. Okay, but I need to see the memo from Bannon or the email or the call where Bannon says to a couple of these knuckleheads from one of those groups, don't leave and don't let them vote. That's not in the public record so far. Now, as Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. How timely, right? How fortuitous uh, that was to be with Costa, both of us kind of steeped in what's going on and able to have that level of conversation about about Steve Bannon's indictment and where are we really relative to January 6th. Don't forget, don't forget the story, though, when there was first reference made at our live event Friday night to Bannon being indicted and the crowd cheered. I said if Steve Bannon were here, he'd be cheering, too. He loves this. This is what he wants. He'll be wearing his army jacket and wrapped in a Gadsden flag before you know it. 
the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.